Broadcasting live from the Business Radio X studios in Phoenix, Arizona, it's time for Phoenix Business Radio, spotlighting the city's best businesses and the people who lead them. Welcome to AZ Brandcast, where we talk to all sorts of awesome people about the power of brand and how to build great brands in our remarkable state of Arizona. I'm your co-host, Mike Jones. I'm here with Chris Stadler, who's going to intro our guest today. Guys, our guest today is Rod Leniger. I first met Rod when he hired me to work at an autonomous vehicle company where he was the interim COO of a division. Rod was a pleasure to work with and always asked great questions. Before that, uh, Rod sat at the helm of several acquisitions at iCrossings, helped raise $100 million in venture funding until it eventually sold for $325 million. Mm-hmm. I think I have that in my couch, Mike. What's so What's so great about that? <laughs> oh, whatever. Anyway, he's complete. He's completed post grad work at MIT and Columbia Business School. I'm just kind of wondering how we got. Well, anyway, let's, let's not ruin a good thing. As I'm reading this, I'm thinking Rod has better things to do, but uh, we'll just leave that alone. Rod now serves as adjunct faculty member at GCU, teaching a class on entrepreneurship and innovation at the Colangelo College of Business is a mentor at Galvanize and at Venture Madness for Invest Southwest. But before we talk to Rod, a word from our sponsors. Yeah, so I have to mention our fantastic friends at Conscious Capitalism Arizona. Um, They're our sponsors of the show and they provide to make this happen every single month. This local association is on a mission to share with the whole world how doing business for good is just good business. The local chapter of Conscious Capitalism here in Arizona incorporates and hosts tons of local events, provides resources for business leaders to instill a higher purpose in their company and engage all their stakeholders. And I think that's, for us, one of the really cool reasons why we love to partner with them on this show. Um, So be sure to check them out. That is ConsciousCapitalismAZ.com. We've got lots of events coming up, including the uh, national or the International Conference of Conscious Capitalism is going to be hosted in Phoenix in April. I think that's going to be a really, really exciting event um, for any business leaders or people who really want to instill a higher purpose in their business. Did you mark your calendar, Mike? I have marked it on my calendar. Righteous. I'm waiting for pre-sale tickets. Nice. I'm waiting anxiously. So before we get started with Rod, we have an icebreaker, don't we, Mike? Yeah, we do. So we're going to ask Rod because, and I, I had this in mind that he is a, he's very cosmopolitan and a world traveler. And so I want to know, Rod, from your qualified opinion, what is your favorite food city in the world? Well, it's probably either Rome or uh, Florence in Tuscany. Also a small uh, city, uh, village called San Gimignano. Uh, because Italian food is is phenomenal, and hmm. you know to to get Italian food in Italy is like a totally different experience than getting it here. How so? It's just much more robust. It's it's tastier. It's fresher. Um, you know the natural products besides the pasta that some of which they actually make there, but the you know the salad products and the capricci hmm. and all that stuff is is right there. It's all natural. So you walk through the towns. And you see the the food uh, for sale in the little shops that they're the restaurants are actually using to prepare their meals. So it's just it's a total experience. I feel like if I had an Italian restaurant, like I'd want my own cheese guy, like in the back, <laughs> and he has to be old, but and like wise with bushy <laughs> eyebrows and like with the accent. Yeah, you know. Yeah, that could help. Yeah, <laughs> could help. Might get you a little bit closer that to the real thing. Yeah. Would help. What is so follow up? Follow up then on that. 
What is your favorite American city that makes Italian food? Wherever you have the best mm. Italian food in the United States. Um, that one's pretty easy too. <laughs> Since I'm originally from New York mm. and, and grew up in New York City, there's a San Gennaro Festival every year in the fall in Little Italy, downtown Manhattan. If you're from that area and you have any um, desire to have great Italian food, as best as you can, short of going to Rome, <laughs> that that's the place. And and as you look around, most of the people are speaking Italian and have come at some point in time in their history from Rome mm. or or Tuscany or some other area there. And and the food is just phenomenal. So and, and it's a big festival. It's outdoors and they have games and stuff for kids and. Um, lots of different uh, tables along the streets that you can pick out what you want, including a large supply of cannolis for the way home. Oh, man. Which you could get mugged <laughs> on the subway if you have a box of cannolis. There, there were that I mean, pop. you had me at New York City, but then you <laughs> added like the authentic Italian, the people speaking Italian. Oh, yeah. Yeah. The oh the cannolis. So yeah. cannoli on the subway. So you're saying that's like Doomed. having like cash. Just yeah, pretty much. Cash yeah. Right <laughs> About the you have to same be careful. Thing. Yeah. You, you, don't, know, you don't, 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 don't want to get mugged. Yeah. No, no indeed. Cannolied. Yeah. Yeah. Mugged for your cannolis. That'd be a story. <laughs> that's a book title, right? That there. is okay. So if you got mugged, you'd be able to recoup all your money when you did the commercial for the cannoli company. There you go. It was so good. I got mugged. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I don't <laughs> you'd be the official. You'd be the Jared. Well, bad example. Uh, wah, wah. We well, don't have sound effects on this show. I just yeah. do them all myself. That's Come great, on, though. sound engineer. Yeah, been practicing my trombone. <laughs> all right, Chris, bring us back to reality. Uh, well, so I'm going to flip questions because I feel like we just talked about. Um, Rod's international mm. experience and bringing it down to mm. Phoenix and Arizona. Mm. I'm wondering, so you, you weren't, I mean, so you, you weren't just like, oh yeah, I was born somewhere and then came here and lived all my life here. You actually went to MIT, um, did coursework there post-grad, and then you have a um, master's at your MBA. Is it an MBA from uh, Columbia. Columbia? Yeah. That's legit. So you have experience outside, experience from a bigger city. Bringing that to Arizona, mm -hmm. what what what's maybe the one or two things that stand out most about the culture here, about how business is done here? Well, it's evolved over the years. And when I first came to Arizona, it was 1991, I guess. And prior to that time, I had lived in Europe and Australia and different places in the U.S., mostly related to job assignments with um, pretty much big companies. And then when I moved out here, you know, a lot of it was the typical weather. You know, we were living in New York and Connecticut and just could not stand the cold anymore. Mm. Um, and we said, this is always gray. It's always cold. <laughs> and we had gone to, uh, my wife had a friend who got married in Phoenix. And with all the business travel both of us had done all around the world, we had never been to Phoenix. So <laughs> it was cold. It was freezing uh, in the winter. And we said, well, why don't we go to the wedding and extend the stay and stay there for like a week, eight days and get a feel for the area. So we stayed at the point at South Mountain, which is what they called mm -hmm. it then, um, and had a phenomenal time. We were triathletes at the time, both my wife and I, and, you know, they had a huge Olympic lap pool and people were running on the trails. And we said, wow, we've died and gone to heaven. That's awesome. Because it's tough to train in, in New York and New Jersey in the winter, at least anything outdoors. Um, so when we came here, we were pretty excited because there were technology companies, which is, you know, the, the discipline that we were both in. They had head, not headquarters, but regional operations here. 
You know, so at that time, there were, besides IBM, there were a lot of mini computer companies that we were familiar with, and they were around the valley. And we thought it was a good place for business. And so we left and went back. And then we said, you know, that'd be something to consider as a place to live because they're they're into technology. They they have some pretty vibrant and exciting things, and it's clean compared to the East Coast. We couldn't mm. get over <laughs> everything from people's cars to the streets to the sidewalks. It was just so clean and felt fresh and new, which compared to New York and Boston, it, it is. So we we wound up selling the house on the East Coast in three days. Didn't give us much of a um, time to make a choice, and we moved out here. And I still had a, a consulting business. My wife was a freelance marketing writer, so she found things to do. And I eventually connected with what was then known as uh, Bull HN, because the H was for Honeywell, the N was for NEC. They had a cooperation. Okay. And then they got out of those and became, you know, Compagnie de Machine Bull. And the French don't like you to say bull. They want to say bull. So we got used to doing that. Um, but I think that, you know, to get back to your original question, when we got out here uh, and we we're looking for work and looking for um, clients, and I was still flying around because I had clients on the West Coast, the, the change between New York and Phoenix was pretty noticeable and significant you know you call somebody in new york and you hardly hang up and they're calling you back and they're probably yelling at you hmm. you call somebody in phoenix and days would go by and we'd say what did we do they're mm -hmm. not getting back to us so that it, it was just a different, different pace speed. And, and you had to learn you know and it's not that that's wrong it's different i mean that's one of the things from living around the world everybody says you know you're in another country and you're surprised at how they live and say you know how do they live like this well they live very well and they like it it's just different. And that's one of the things that um, uh, particularly the French find annoying about Americans is they're so judgmental. And uh, getting a chance to live outside Versailles for a while, um, I found the people were really gracious and they mm -hmm. love their lifestyle. And quite frankly, they can't understand why Americans tend to overdo it and be such, you know, fast paced hustling and not, you know, stopping to smell the coffee, if you will. Mm. Um, so that was one of the most noticeable things, the difference in the pace. But by the same token, when we first moved out here, um, people were really welcoming. Mm. My wife was setting up um, phone service or electricity or something. And the agent she was talking to was asking her where we're from, what we're doing. She invited us out to their house in, I think, Gilbert, you know, for an afternoon of, of fun and get acquainted. And they brought friends over and were like... Okay, that that does not happen in New York and Connecticut. Wow! <laughs> so that I mean, it made us feel very good, and it was pretty much that where wherever we went around the state. So that was a good feeling. You felt like you were in a um, a good place. Um, there was competition, there was industry, but it was also a slower pace. Companies mm -hmm. were successful. Um, people were into what they were doing, but it was not that hustle, hustle, hustle that you got in mm -hmm. New York. So how can so how could uh... Like there must be there must be some difference, not just a qualitative difference. Like, oh, we're slower, so we do less of the same as everywhere else. Um, what is the actual advantage to being a little slower, if there is one? <laughs> well, over the twenty years since I've been here, it's the, the, there's not as much difference as there used to be. But I think people, um, you know, I don't know if slower is an advantage or if even that noticeable now. But people are a little bit more less likely to jump to conclusions. Um, and particularly, you know, working in New York, people right away make snap judgments, snap decisions. There's a lot of smart people and aggressive people, but I think you have people who I've met in Arizona who are really good at business. And, you know, an attorney that we worked with, uh, Tom Curzon at Osborne, 
is probably the best slow guy I've ever met. Hmm. Only from the standpoint of he's he's been negotiating term sheets. He's been on boards of companies I've worked with. And the board members of the people negotiating term sheets, entrepreneur and investors can actually be close to blows almost. Tom is one of those people who just calmly brings everybody back to the table, comes up with a really great solution to the thing they were talking about. And I, I think he's pretty emblematic, although he's, he's probably above a lot of people at the ability to do it, but he's probably emblematic or, or example of how taking a slow and a very thoughtful approach can be pretty successful. So it just the craziness of the New York and, uh, you know, the, the thoughts of Wall Street and stockbrokers and screaming and yelling, uh, you know, that that has to be the way it is and it can be effective. But there's something about the approach that uh, people take here that's it's formal, but it's not uh, it's not chaotic. And people don't, are not going to get run over here. It's not like they can't keep up. I think it's just a different approach, maybe mm-hmm. more thoughtful, maybe more uh, a lot of polite people in Arizona. That was kind of shocking because <laughs> you're not always ready for that coming from New York and the greater metropolitan area. Or if that's some <laughs> of our Midwestern transplant influence. Well, yeah, mm. because, you know, that's the other thing we found when we went out here. Um, you know, we, we felt so new and then we found out everybody else was just less new. <laughs> there yeah. were very, very few yeah. native Arizonans who you'd meet one and go, oh, wow. You know, can we get a picture with you? <laughs> <laughs> so, and you just, you know, as an outsider, initially, you just get those, you figure those things mm. out. It's part of the culture. Mm-hmm. So uh, a mutual friend, I'm going to steal another question, Mike, before I, uh, mutual fine. friend. So, um, so a guy from uh, local motors, he's now with Aircart, I think in San Francisco, he's the CEO of Aircart. Um, uh, Aaron Frank. Oh, I didn't You're, interact with him that much. I recognize the name, but so he had this theory, right? So his theory was that, um, in the North, it's too cold to be outside. So people are getting a lot a lot of stuff done it was kind of one of his hmm. you know so he's like yeah you know down here people are so slow because there's just so much you know you can go outside and do all you know so i'm like hmm, there More might be something opportunities to yeah it might be yeah any you have a take on that any volunteers to, to grapple with that one i can uh, kind do, of buy it well okay but counterpoint do you think of minnesota when you think of like High speed, quick decisions, snap judgment. It would have to be a necessary but insufficient, like prerequisite for you know. Yeah. So it'd be like there's hey, something if you else have a big that. City, I, I, maybe maybe it's one of the variables, but I feel like you know, like because New York's usually the one that everyone tosses out and mm-hmm. says prototypical American culture, get stuff done as fast as humanly possible, make decisions quickly. Yeah. Run people over if you have to. Mm-hmm. If you can um, make it in New York, you make it anywhere. Exactly. Did you just come up with that? Yeah, I know. I just came <laughs> to me. Wow. Trademark. Fantastic. <laughs> if you can make it here, you can make it anywhere. Uh, Breaks a notch. <laughs> uh, so, I, yeah, I don't know. It feels like there's something else to it than just that. Yeah. But maybe that's part of it. Yeah. You know, yeah. it's 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 different things. I mean, you know, in, in New York, um, the the... The timing is different. The the time for work is different. You know, mm. it would not be unusual to kind of stroll into the office at nine or even later in New York, but people would stay and work till seven or later. Mm. And we got out here, everybody's going to work at seven in the morning because of the heat and everything. And they had no problem leaving at four or four thirty, mm-hmm. which we found really strange and unusual. Mm. And your first tendency is to be critical of that, you know, oh, they're not accomplishing as much. Well, actually they were. 
it just, it was a different time zone, a different uh, climate, which had an impact on it. And, you know, it works. What works here isn't necessarily going to work somewhere else. And so in New York, it was normal um, to stay up and watch the late show or the night show, which, you know, way back it was Johnny Carson. No one even thought about it. I would no more stay up that late out here because you know, I know what time I'm getting up in the morning. Yeah. Uh, so it's just it, it, different things. Yeah. Yeah. You go out there in the basketball games on the West Coast are so late. You're like, mm-hmm. how do people, oh yeah, we're on the, we're three hours ahead. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it might be too, it's seven o'clock here. It's like nine o'clock, you know, or mm-hmm. 10 o'clock, depending on the time of year yeah. in New York. Yeah. So. so you've talked, uh, <clears throat> Rod, you've talked a lot about, um, you know, one of the things we want to talk about was partnering with academia, businesses partnering with academia. Mm-hmm. And um, so I'm wondering, is, is uh, you have experience with both ASU and GCU, and are those, are those colleges unique? Um, is, there, is there a cultural difference that you've noticed between those colleges and colleges, you know, other colleges, universities? Yeah, I, I mean, I think it's probably not a fair comparison, ASU to GCU, because GCU is still very, very new. Mm. Um, and, and I've worked with AS, ASU and, and Punch um, in the engineering school, and he's now, I don't know, chief of innovation of the world or something. I, there, <laughs> he keeps getting... That's a good title. I don't know how... It's like he, Mr. Universe and then uh, that guy. <laughs> it's like he is responsible for so much, and successfully so. Mm. You keep seeing announcements about what the university has done, and he's usually responsible for that. And, and mm. I worked with him years ago as an advisor for the... Um, uh, the engineering school. And um, so just, to, I, I don't want to miss the question because I'll get ahead of myself, but I think GCU is uh, at, at the moment um, certainly not as focused on research um, and they're not as focused on technology. Although I'm in the business school, I'm not in the engineering school, so I really haven't been exposed to it that much, but I haven't mm-hmm. heard of, of that much. But ASU is so focused on research and the amount of grant money they bring in from you know agencies like DARPA and others is just phenomenal so there you know i i would not put the two schools together i mean i think gco is great for what they're doing mm-hmm. um asu is a beacon of light from the technology and innovation standpoint and you know programs for supply chain and different areas within the school and you know i'm familiar with the engineering and business part it's it's bigger than that. and then years ago we even tried to work and, and did to a certain point with the uh, EVIT, the East Valley uh, hmm. Technology Institute, which is a little bit more hands-on, more focused, less research, but turning out people for technology jobs. And that's why we wanted to um, coordinate with them. So I, I don't know if that gets to the question you were asking, but I, I have a lot more to say about <laughs> workforce development. Well, yeah, was, that's what I was going to ask about, because you had mentioned that um, there's this phenomenon where a lot of student, a lot of engineering students come out of ASU, but then end up going somewhere else yeah, to work. And, and um, the statistics that I, I told you about were, um, you know, probably four or five years old. And I don't know if it's changed, but in, in working with Ponch and others there, one of their frustrations was not getting great people into the master's program, although they wish they had more from Arizona. A lot of them were from out of state, out of country. But when they graduated, if they weren't moving on to a PhD program, they were getting jobs in California and other places, not in Arizona. Yep. And so the, I was with the tech council at that point. I remember I was president or chairman, something like that. And we're trying to coordinate workforce development. He said, you know, there's like three prongs to that. 
You have to have government involved, whether you like it or not, because they're an interface. You have to have the companies involved if they're going to leverage this. And you have to be partners with academia, the universities, not just ASU, but U of A and the community colleges and EBIT, and which is part of ASU. But there's a range of job skills that you're going to need. So the, the idea was to get the companies together and say, hey, some of your programs are not necessarily creating the kind of skills and people that we need in industry. So visit us, let us come and tell you what those specific skills are. And if you can integrate that into your curriculum, that they're coming out with those skills, we have jobs for them. Hmm. And then the, the companies and um, you know, the state of Arizona had to do a better job of uh, explaining to the universities who these tech companies were years ago, um, what kind of jobs they had, where they were and what they were looking for. And it was just People weren't talking to each other mm. and everybody would say, how, how could these students be leaving? There's such great jobs in Arizona. And you talk to the students and they would say, what great jobs in Arizona? You know, we, nobody came on campus. Ooh, shame on us. Um, uh, they weren't getting the information that they needed. So what we we're trying to do is get the companies uh, to get on a workforce development committee and, and visit the schools, meet with the students, and then have um, events at your company, you know, pizza parties or whatever. And, get 40 engineers from different programs to come and see your company, get a tour, meet the people and find out if these companies. And then obviously word of mouth when they went back to campus and say, Hey, there's companies here. They're not just, you don't have to go to California. Hmm. And it's like anything else. (laughs) You you develop a little bit of excitement and somebody gets into it and maybe the company designates someone you can work with to stick with that. And somehow it dies off. It was an ongoing challenge. And I think, the tech council, uh, I'm not actively involved anymore, but I am chairman emeritus, which, you know, means that's somebody who used to be important. <laughs> um, but I still, I, we have a board meeting tomorrow. I still go to their board meetings. I know they have a workforce development group, uh, volunteers from member companies who try and keep this stuff going. And years ago, when I was at Bull, uh, we actually adopted a uh, middle school down the street from where the facility hmm. was. And we brought those kids in and let them see how printed circuit boards were made and how computer software was developed and got the feel for what a, a facility looked like. And we would send um, engineers on site for technology days at the school. And you develop this relationship and you say, well, you know, they're middle school. Well, you know, they have parents, they have brothers, they're going to grow up and go to college and they're going to remember the cool company down the street. And it it was a good process for a while until um, Bull started <laughs> to do less and less business in, in America. But that concept <clears throat> we had taken to the member companies and very few people were willing to adopt it because mm. it requires a little bit of a commitment. And so the, the, the end goal was great, but it wasn't short term enough um, uh, cause and effect for them to really yeah. invest in it. If it was easy, it's a multi-year investment. Yeah, you know, and some employee had a kid in that school down the street, then yeah, you would do it. So from my point is from at that point, all the way up through the, the colleges, universities, um, you gotta have something going. And the community colleges can't wait to help. I mean, whenever mm-hmm. we got them involved, um, you know, they're a little bit more flexible, I guess, than than the big universities. And they're they're turning out people with skills in, in two years that Companies need, you know, you don't necessarily have to have a four-year degree. You know, if you can learn Python, hey, we got room for you. Mm. (laughs) You know, teach yourself XML and plus two years of technology at Gateway or one of the Maricopa County colleges. There's jobs for those people. So I think there's a a disconnect between 
how sophisticated the college education has to be versus the actual hands-on skills that the companies in the Valley need. That's a, I feel like that's always been the challenge too with technology mm-hmm. is that the, the skills required change so quickly, mm-hmm. right? You know, 10 years ago, nobody was talking about Python. Mm-hmm. Right now it's, now it's like the hottest language in the world. I know. And so a school like ASU who's developing curriculum that's hopefully going to last longer than five yeah. years. Yeah is really under a lot of pressure. Like that's, that's a hard thing for them to keep up with. Yeah. And I think because it's so um, vital and changes so quickly, you have to get people from the school out into the companies to see Mm -hmm. what they're doing and vice versa and go in and and present to classes or to um, program chairs about, Hey, here's where we're going. Here's what we need. And, and guess what? Here's what we need today but here's what we think we're going to need in three years. So design your program. So it's appropriate with the overarching need people who can communicate. (laughs) Everybody I talk to in, in industry or on the industry side is just frustrated at the lack of the ability to be interactive and communicate with your peers, with your superiors. And, And even if you bring somebody in to train, um, and, and use an internal person to train them, so it's really hard to sit down and teach somebody something on a program and text the information to them, which is the experience you have. You have to be able to actually talk to them mm-hmm. and understand, you know, how people are going to react to the way you talk to them. I mean, the whole interpersonal thing is is almost scary for me. I don't know if it's as much for other people, but when I see it and even teaching now, and I have pretty much juniors and seniors uh, in the business school. Um, from the business program and some from hospitality and I think one from nursing and maybe one engineering because they run the same class in the engineering school, but scheduling sometimes brings them into my class. Very few of them are really good at articulating their position. And, and I understand what it's like to be a junior or senior in college. You know, I have to get an electric jolt to have me remember back that far. <laughs> but, you know, so they're a little nervous. They're in front of peers and, and, you know, others who, you know, maybe they're not comfortable talking, but I do everything possible to make it not threatening and try and bring them out. And even when they come out there, I, and it's just, I'm really surprised at the, hmm. the lack of ability to, um, conduct interpersonal communications in, in a way that's, um, that's going to be effective. So, that's a big thing. And so it's not, the point is, it's not just the, the technical skills. I agree with that. I think I know from our experience, just hiring people, those communication and interpersonal skills. Like mm-hmm. if you can communicate with empathy, mm-hmm. we can do a lot with that. Sure. Right? Mm-hmm. The rest of the technical skills are important, but they're, we can train. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and getting somebody who can actually relate to people and mm-hmm. communicate clearly with them is, is just gold. Oh yeah. And you know, you think that people, um, you know, maybe internally or technically are not necessarily going to be interfacing with the customer, but eventually they will, yep. um, you know, through support or through visits or whatever. And that makes such a big impression on the customers. Uh, yeah. And you can have a guy who isn't all that maybe highly qualified in the technical work that he's doing, but he's good enough. But if he has those interpersonal skills where he can pretty much charm a customer, that's gold. Yeah. You know, and there's very few people like that you see coming out. Yeah. Yeah, and if you want to future-proof your career, yeah. those are the skills that'll last you, you know, a lifetime in your career. Yeah. Yeah. Well, when we were at when I was at Iowa, we had you know we had a bunch of engineers, and they all had varying levels of social skills. But there was one who was just really 
you get out there and talk with people. And he mm-hmm. wasn't maybe the most competent engineer. He was competent enough, smart, you know. He works for NASA now. He's a PhD researcher at NASA, you know. I mean, it was obvious, you know, because he could talk with people and he could convince people of things. And it's not just convincing of, you know, it's not just charming people, you know, for any reason. It's sometimes you need to help someone understand something they don't want to understand, mm-hmm. right? Sure. And so part of that's just that social skill of being able to 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 push deeper into that relationship with a, mm-hmm. with a client, you know. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, you know, we see it all the time. And, it's, and you know, the companies need to um, create environments where employees feel comfortable to do those kind of things. I saw a video the other day, you know, Simon Sinek, mm-hmm. um, he was talking about um, leadership and he said he went to the <clears throat> Four Seasons and there was a, he got coffee in the lobby and there was a barrister, young guy there working. And he said, the guy just blew him away. He was so friendly. He was so nice. He was so pleasant. And it just seemed... He made it so in, in enjoyable for Simon that he said, you know, I gave him a 100% tip. It was that good, you know, $5 <laughs> coffee, $5 tip. But he said, he made a point of asking me, he said, you know, do you like your job? Without hesitation, the barrister said, I love my job. Hmm. And so Simon followed up and said, well, why do you love your job? And again, without hesitation, he said, all day long, managers from the Four Seasons come by this stand, and they always ask me how I'm doing and if I need anything. And it's mm. not just my manager. It's all the managers in the company. Mm. So what does that tell you about the environment that they've mm. created for their employees? And then he told Simon, he said, you know, I also work at another hotel. I can't remember which one he chose. So I'll say it's a hard rock. It wasn't, but it, one like that. He says, I also work there. He said, and it's different. He says, you know, the pay is good and everything, but there it's all about pushing the employees. Come on, you got to do this. You got to work harder. It's tough to find good employees. He said, there, I just kind of try and keep my head below the radar because I don't want to get in trouble. So look at the differences between those two uh, employee environments and what kind of people do you think you get out of that? Mm. You know, it makes a big difference. It was a great story. And, you know, Simon's just a great storyteller, but I think it's a really good example of, it's not just the employees where you want interpersonal skills. They need a chance yep. to be able to use that and express yep. themselves and not feel threatened and, and, you know, get rewarded, even if it's, hey, you're doing a good job. Well, that's interesting because another topic you wanted to talk about that I wanted you to talk about was uh, this whole idea of entrepreneurship within an organization. Mm-hmm. So at first I was like, entrepreneur, he spelled it wrong. <laughs> but it turns out Rod did not spell it wrong. Right. Entrepreneur. Tell us about that. Yeah, it's, um, you know, at GCO, they have a program called Entrepreneurship with an I and Innovation because the two sort of go hand in hand. So mm-hmm. the thought being that if you're an innovator or you have an innovative idea and, and we're all designers, you know, everything in this room where we're conducting this was designed by human beings, mm-hmm. didn't just pop up. So somebody had the the wherewithal and the skill to look around and see what might have been needed. And, you know, maybe it was a small change, maybe it was a big one, but it was innovative. So a lot of companies now um, are really, <laughs> well, claiming to focus on innovation. And if you look at annual reports and a company called CB Insights, who I, I follow because of all the work that they do looking at startups and technology and, and not just little ones, you know, they track Airbnb and, and others. They did a survey less than six months ago, by almost 700 companies around the world, not just the U.S., to get their view on, you know, what are they doing for innovation? Do they consider it important? How do they address it? And um, overwhelmingly, the majority said, yes, we're all over innovate. We're all about it. 
And of course, there was a follow-up question. Well, can you tell me what you're actually doing with innovation? <laughs> well, the percentage drops well below 50% of, any, <laughs> of anybody who's actually implementing a real program, but they're pretty ready to take credit for it. Um, mm-hmm. And very often the board is saying to them, well, what are you guys doing as mm-hmm. far as you know being innovators? Um, so the, the idea of an intrapreneur is having the ability in a company on either a formal or an informal basis to have a great idea, which may be specifically related to what the company is doing, or it might be a little bit tangential, but take that and run with it as if you were an entrepreneur on the outside looking for funding. But now you have sort of a a internal parent who, if they believe in your plan and you, they'll fund your activity Mm -hmm. just as a, a VC or PE firm would. And then you get to choose or recruit employees either from within or outside the company to join this entrepreneurial innovation team. And they, you know, they follow specific practices. They, they use human-centered design. They use business canvas models, all the things to evaluate the innovation and other tools to implement the innovation. Those are the companies that take a formal approach to it. And obviously, they, they measure it carefully and they create environments where the employees already in the company who are not in the innovative group or not in the entrepreneurial group know what to expect and how to relate to the people we are going to be doing some things differently. Because if you just identify this group and say, well, you're the entrepreneurs and they've got all this baggage of being in a bureaucratic environment for the last 20 years, they're not really going to spin anything out. They're, they're going to like the parents' money and they probably are not going to be willing to take risk you know what entrepreneurism is, you got to be ready to fail. It's probably good if you do a couple of times, pivot, restart, you know, change the, the minimally viable product, all of those things that you wouldn't typically do in, you know, like a GE. Well, we know GE, right, Chris? <laughs> and, um, we have some experience there where it actually did yes, work in a small group. Yep. Um, so that's what companies are trying to do when they say, you know, we're going to be innovative and Intel started doing this a while ago, um, and I don't know enough about them to uh, to assess how good the program is. I'm, I'm sure it's like a lot of others where it's, some are good, some are bad. But that it's not normal for most companies who are particularly public companies living quarter to quarter on earnings to say, you know, it's okay if you fail. It's mm-hmm. okay if you lose money. Mm-hmm. We're behind you. Well, that's until the stock drops and they got an earnings call yeah. coming up and somebody – you know, Mr. CFO says, yo, chief, you know how much we're spending on those innovative groups? So it, it's a battle. It's hard to do unless the company really is going to commit to it. But more and more companies are, and they're turning out some, you know, cool new products that they probably wouldn't have gotten from their traditional R&D function. Mm-hmm. Uh, that they're just, they're realizing that employees, people who are close to the product, close to the customers, are going to see things that management scurrying around trying to hit numbers is not going to see. Uh, and if you can leverage that, you can have some great success. And they're a lot like the traditional entrepreneurial community. And, you know, you got to be an internal VC and say, okay, if I, if I fund 20 companies, I'll be really lucky if three of them have success. Mm-hmm. And that's that's not easy in corporate America. Yeah. You have to be willing to fail. Yeah. And see a lot of it. Yeah, I feel like... Um uh, and they're probably the easy one, but just Google has done a really good job with that mm-hmm. over the years. Um, you know, I don't know if they still continue this program. I, I think they may have changed it, but they had their 20% yeah. program. And like Gmail was birthed out of that. Right. 
um, some epic failures like Google Wave and sure and but others. Yeah, <laughs> but you know that's and I think they still do that. They may have reduced the percentage and yeah, it may not, may not be do. totally across the company. But that was a great idea because yep. uh, you know before that or even still now there were uh, legitimate and illegitimate skunk works mm-hmm. where people typically from R and D would get together because they wanted to work on something. They had an idea yeah. and the company would sort of look the other way or give them their blessing and say, yeah, go for it. But now it's, it's outside the normal R and D channels. It's, it's everybody. And mm-hmm. if you have a great idea that the companies have a program in place to say, here's how you surface it. Mm-hmm. Here's how we'll evaluate it. If we're going to pursue it, do you want to be part of it? Some of the people just come up with the idea and they don't, don't really, don't really feel comfortable that they could own it. They might want to be part of it. But so yeah. that's the way the companies have to get ready to do that. It's like, <laughs> you know, like, yeah, we're into innovation. We have an innovation department. No, 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 you don't, no, you don't have an innovation department. That doesn't work. Yeah. Well, and I think it, it taps into some of the, like Chris and I talk a lot about like the, the, the internal human spirit of freedom. Yeah. And you're really just tapping into that across your entire organization when mm-hmm. you just own oh, that. Hey, we're going to be entrepreneurially minded and obviously have some structure and, and guidelines around that, but yeah. allowing a greater majority of your workforce to really provide mm-hmm. and, and exercise that muscle, right? They're yep. going to do it. Yeah. That's the thing. And especially in today's world with like the digital tools that we have for creation. I mean, you can, people can make stuff, right? Well, as long as you're at the, what was that hotel where the guy was happy working at? That was the Four Seasons. So the, as long as you're at the Four Seasons, right? Because if you go back to the Hard Rock you yeah. know, Hotel, yeah. then you're going to keep your head down. You're not going to exactly. say it, right? Yeah, and nothing, nothing great will happen. Yeah, you're not going to you're not going to go out on a limb with some crazy idea because you know it'll make you look stupid in front of everybody. Well, well yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, but you're going to get those people who are in those jobs who do have great ideas and at least some wherewithal to to see it happen. They're going to do it outside the company. Yeah, right. Right. They're mm-hmm. going to take that idea and they're just going to run with it. And so as a company, it's like, man, you've got these brilliant people working for you, even in, you know, jobs that maybe don't totally qualify them as, you know, on paper, uh, it's not a brilliant job, right? Right. But there's a brilliant brain sitting there Mm -hmm. making coffee all day. Mm. And why not allow them to tap into some of that? Yeah. And and a guy like that, you could see how interactive he was with Simon. He's going to be interactive with everybody and he has stories and experiences to share with his manager of the company to say, you know what we could be doing differently? You know what people really like? Well, listening to your customers usually proved to be pretty effective in my career. (laughs) So if you have a guy who can actually pull that out of people, you know, without saying, oh, well, what do you like about it? What don't you know? He's interacting with them. He's getting real world experiences that he can share and and maybe create his own ideas. He's He's a barista. And a qualitative researcher. <laughs> Pretty much. But as many people you, you can get like that who yeah. love their job, love what they're doing, want to make it better for themselves and for the company that they appreciate, that's mm-hmm. that's where success comes from. So, so, so the culture part, right? The culture of generosity where you set the stage and you let people share ideas and you reward them and you treat them like they're brilliant, not because their idea is going to be this, you know, huge success but because they thought of it because they're smart right so you you, ha- you have this you have this environment what what else does it take because I, I i don't imagine you can just say okay everybody be innovative you know and then we'll section off part of your time you know be innovative and there must be some structure and some guidance um some process to that i mean yeah yeah i i mean i think from what we've seen and you know some of the work that the school's doing um 
there's an emerging um, innovation architecture um, mm-hmm. of how companies can treat these things. And there isn't a, a single template because the companies are all different and different sizes and different activities. But the employees have to understand that there is a process and, and they're not only um, allowed to be innovative, it's kind of expected that they'll, they'll do some of that. So for the companies that are going to be successful, it starts with the onboarding and an explanation of, you know, how at this company we innovate. And it's hard to put your hands around that completely because it could be anything, but here's, here's how we deal with it. Here's how we encourage employees to bring it up. And if you have a great idea, here's the process to follow and here's what will happen. As I said before, how it will get evaluated. If it's going to be an idea we can use, how do we go forward? How do we set up a maybe entrepreneur situation in the company? Companies are doing that, but you still have, you know, you have to, get down to the lowest level supervisor and engender them with the enthusiasm for this. And they've got all these other things they need to do. And they say, Oh man, do I have to get into this innovation <laughs> stuff? You know, what did that guy say again? So if, you know, the person, the individual told it to, um, doesn't follow up and doesn't tell them what happened to the idea, your program's going to die. I mean, that mm. sounds obvious, but it happens. Mm. So when you say, you know, what are companies doing? They're trying to set up formal processes, starting with when somebody comes on board, orientation, and, and they follow up with it. And, you know, sometimes it's um, uh, regularly structured meetings. They'll carve out a time at the end of the staff meeting. And, you know, anybody encountered something they like, anybody have a great idea on anything, they'll put questions out there like, what really annoys you? And what mm. annoys you about working here? What annoys you about things on the way to work? You know, is it too long a line at the coffee shop? Yeah. Mm. To get them thinking mm. so they understand that it's not just what's happening in our company. Innovation can come from anywhere. It could be something you see on the way into work or while you're actually at work. Mm. Um, so it's it's a mindset because, you know, if you, you hire somebody and say, you know, it's okay to innovate around here. You know, whenever you're ready, just, you know, let us know. Well, <laughs> most people have no clue what you're talking about but there will be some people who are just filled with ideas and you have to be able to also uh, deal with some ideas that are not so great and just be able to explain to the person that hey we appreciate it but let me tell you why that's probably not going to work or give them time to try and develop it a little bit you know mm-hmm. and explain the process to ideate empathize implement test um, and you know people sometimes even well students i guess it's not surprising but they get surprised at the processes that you would go they'd think well we've got an idea we'll just we'll get it to market there's some <laughs> steps between your, your idea and the market that we typically want to just run through humorous you know mm. but once they learn some of the mechanics and the process mm-hmm. they kind of get it so hopefully as they go on and develop careers this will be ingrained in them that's that's part of being um, a successful business person entrepreneur entrepreneur you know you got to be thinking that way mm. you know what can we do differently well, it seems like the creative, <clears throat> the creative process is similar to the process of innovation, right? So in our industry, mm-hmm. we're in advertising. And so, um, you know, once you get to the conceptual work where you're like, the company has a problem, then you write a creative brief, right? So it's like, mm-hmm. what is it? Who's it for? And why does it matter? And the more specific you can get with those answers, now, you know, you have a message that's going to be more and more relevant, right? And more and more interesting. Mm-hmm. At, wh- where you and I were, we were in co-creation, mm-hmm. right? Um, so you were the chief operations officer of a co-creation company. Right. Um, <clears throat> my part of that was to write write the challenges. Part mm-hmm. of part part of my job was to write the challenges, which is kind of like writing a creative brief. And so the advantage we had there was we were just like, "Hey, community, solve a problem." And so we had kind of an abundance of ideas coming our way. Right. 
would you say that's a necessary part of a um of a like like what what role does that play in providing constraints for for innovation well i don't know if it provides constraints again it it gets to the size of the company and the nature of the company and you know, big corporations it's a little easier for them to apply some of their historical um processes and templates I think, you know, what you were talking about when, when we were working with a software division that sort of leveraged the maker community, not just in their company, but around the world to be able to get some of the best minds to come up with ideas or to address a challenge. I think that's, that's a beautiful thing because you only have so many intellects in your company and they may be great, but when you add 10 X times that by allowing it to be outside and being very open and being willing to accept other ideas, then that creates a very strong potential for innovation to happen. Again, you know, it depends on the companies. And for a lot of this, it's very new to them, um, but they seem to be into it and, and employees respond pretty well. But, you know, it's the same. It's not everybody. You know, some people say, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't want to get involved in that. <laughs> but if you can get them to start thinking that, you know, they can be involved. And they may have some ideas that they want to bring to the table. And guess what? There's a forum to do that. Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, it, it's like a lot of things in business, you know, communicate, let people know what's going on and create an architecture or infrastructure that makes it work and people understand how it works. Um, because if you're just, you know, some, if you're trying to address these ideas every time it's a new experience and you go through a new process, it's really painful and troubling and very often not effective. But if something fits into a, again, architecture or process that people understand, you know, from the management on down to the employees, you can get to um, an answer, a go, no go decision much more quickly mm -hmm. and can be effective. Is there, um, <clears throat> is there an example that you really like of a, um, of a company innovating? Uh, so, so we talked about, we talked about principles, but what about like, have you seen a process that really works well? Well, I don't get to see the internal processes of a lot of companies. Um, mm. You know, we kind of kid about GE and their consumer products division that, right. you know, we yep. were, were helping at one point. I mean, I think they did a pretty good job because here you had giant GE for who years, as, you know, everything is an American corporation, you know, structure, process, probably heavily weighted with too much bureaucracy, but mm. they had their stuff together. So now they come into this co-creation community building thing where you bring the maker community in and again, saying to consumers, what would you really like in appliances from somebody like GE? What do you like and not like about our washing machines that we very cleverly designed over a four-year process? And they started to get ideas from people that they didn't think about. And, and who was the idea coming from? The users of their product. And they finally realized that, you know, this is great. And they, I mean, they came up with some things that consumers wanted, like the, uh, the ice maker for those little ice cubes that consumers apparently wanted. Was it the Sonic ones? The, was it Sonic or was it some, some place people would always go and just get, get like. Yeah, maybe ice. it was, but people want this in their homes yeah, for some reason. Exactly. Plus they want their own $1,500 pizza oven. That's right. the price. Now <laughs> I wasn't true. I wasn't thinking that way until I heard about it. I said, Wow, I could have pizza like three or four nights a week. Yeah. Yeah. There's all this New York style and now Chicago style, right? Yeah. Well, but anyway, I mean I <laughs> No, you have a friend in Mike. He he totally is on the he hates the Chicago. I'm just not a fan. Can I say hey? Yeah. 
<laughs> it's it's get it's edging towards hatred. Okay. <laughs> I don't know. I've, I wouldn't say. Hatred. I've never had enough Chicago pizza to be for or against, and uh, you know, I'm a little prejudiced being from New York. I you know, I think that's probably the best pizza. But anyway. <laughs> <laughs> um, so so getting back to the GE thing, besides, uh, and you know, you saw some of this, Chris, too, from the experience that the employees at GE had once they saw what was going on in this innovative new division where they could get hands-on experience. Everybody wanted to join the division. I mean, they were yep. turning people away in terms of employees. And if you were there, you were pretty cool. And everybody was a little bit jealous. You were the cool kid, man. Yeah, I and know. That, and that and was his first build, right? First build is yeah. how they could look that up. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. One of the other things was, I remember we were on a phone call with the, the woman who sort of headed that division at one point and they had pointedly asked her the question. So what's happened to your you know, product lifecycle uh, or product lifecycle management system where the time from new idea to a product out the door or, or even finished design and start manufacture was, I think, 36 months or some, some ridiculous amount. I mean, it was GE. I, guess. I think yeah. it was, thir- I think it was 36 it's months. three years. That's yeah. typical yeah. CPG. Yeah. So you, so you get the good, the bad and the ugly with mm-hmm. having a big process by using this new system and, and, you know, bringing in makers and having the, the community co-create the products, they got the product life cycle down to 12 months. That's amazing. And in the same time that they had in the last couple of years, they, you know, how many products they get out because there's an overlap. They had like three or four times new products getting out. That's crazy. You know, so for a company like GE is already making a lot of money. <laughs> this is, is wild. Plus, you've got the employees who are um, tremendously excited to be in there and out from some of the the umbrage of, well, you know, the heavy processes and, you know, getting things approved. And it still has to get approved, but the cycles got shorter. So you're in an environment where if you are an innovator, it's an exciting place you, to be. And it's going to stimulate you to do more. You get to a win faster. Oh, yeah. Right? Which yeah. everyone loves. Yeah. Or even at least you shipped it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Exactly. Even if it was a failure. Oh, it's yeah. like, well, we got I think through we've it. all been in that situation. Yeah, we shipped. Right? <laughs> Does that count as revenue for the quarter? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay, it's ready to ship. It just fell off the loading dock, but consider that to be shipped. Yeah. So, so, so if you're ever in Louisville, Louisville. Louisville, as Jay would Louis, say. Louisville. <laughs> we used to call it Louisville, Louisville when we got off the plane. Yeah. Go to, go to Mike, if we're ever in Louisville, Okay. We'll go to First Build. Okay. And uh yeah. and then and and they have an amazing showroom and it has a bunch of their products just out there and you just play with the stuff. That's awesome. Yeah. And it all works and refrigerators and yeah. I, I'm trying to remember the features now. And then after that we'll go to Dot Crows for some one of uh three three or four pages of just whiskey. <laughs> <laughs> You, you got me. Yeah. I'm, yeah, I'm yeah I'd go to that after you see the product. After. Yeah. <laughs> and then, then go back and see how the experience has changed. <laughs> Drunk user testing. Yeah. 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 No, they had a lot of, they had a lot of success and a lot of interest with that. The, mm-hmm. the key was, um, well, I don't know what the key was. They had a lot of, they, they had a lot of people from all over the world because they had a recognizable brand name, right? So mm-hmm. people were like, hey, these people might actually make the thing that we, this idea that I have, mm-hmm. right? And um, so we have a lot of ideas, which is one of the one of the measures of a creative process, number of ideas, you know, a lot yep. of the research. So well, I, w- I want to kind of ask a follow-up. Yes. And I think it might lead into the next one anyway. Okay. So we've talked a lot about innovation, mm-hmm. some processes and thinking around how companies can instill that within their culture. How do you feel just from your perspective, Arizona does with that? As a business community, have we 
are we an innovative business community or is that an area where we're weak? Well, I, you know, I, I think we are. And you look at the amount of, you know, new products and, and you know, whether or not they were innovated or got started here. The, um, you know, the Nikola truck that's mm-hmm. hydrogen electric, that's like way cool. Mm-hmm. They, they, they announced that they were coming here at Venture Madness and people were all bouncing off the floor. <laughs> um, and, you know, we have a lot of autonomous vehicle companies here and, and there, I think a lot of companies that are sort of under the radar in terms of the things that they're doing. And, and you know, Greg Head has his mm-hmm. list of software companies are approaching 400 now, I think. Yep. Or maybe it's even over that. And he probably hasn't identified everybody. And then, you know, when I'm down at Galvanize, somebody's always coming up with something pretty cool. And there's, you know, legit startups there uh, and new ideas. And not every every one of them work out. But between the... The accelerators, um, you know, the co-working spaces, the the galvanizers doing training and providing facilities for um, entrepreneurs. Um, I, I just think there's a lot going on. I think mm. people do start to look at Phoenix now as a reasonably innovative place as opposed to, you know, I started talking about a little bit slow, a little bit mm-hmm. backwater. Not, that's probably not right. But, <laughs> But, we used to be. Yeah, at but one point. there's so many tech companies here, and you know, every week you're reading about somebody who's moving a facility mm-hmm. here, if not their corporate headquarters. So between the talent and what you know, I don't know what the number for ASU is, but they're one of the top two or three um, innovative universities in the world. You know, so I think the word is getting out, and people are gravitating mm-hmm. here. And if they do want to, you know, be innovators, they do want to be entrepreneurs. You don't have to go um, to Silicon Valley and live in a cardboard box. You can actually mm-hmm. afford an apartment here, um, mm-hmm. and, and there's some really good stuff going on. And you'll be exposed to other people of a like mind. Because that's one of the big things. You know, if you think you go to Silicon Valley or even now um, in Los Angeles, uh, Silicon Beach, <laughs> <laughs> there's lots of other people that think like you and are doing cool stuff, or somebody's trying to do something cooler than you. You know, mm-hmm. and that just keeps generating this enthusiasm, and people say there's going to be some good stuff coming out of here. This is a place I want to be. So I, I think last 12 to 18 months, there's even more of that happening in Phoenix. And, you know, I think Galvanize is a real plus and uh, you have lots of accelerators and companies like Infusionsoft that are very supportive of mm-hmm. uh, entrepreneurs and things that are going on. So that's we're getting cool. there. We're yeah. getting there. Yeah. That's good to hear. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, that's awesome. You know, and GCU's got... 73 students in my classes are going to be innovators when they get out. That's awesome. (laughs) That's awesome. And then listening to this podcast is going to be part of their homework, right? Yeah, I forgot to tell them about that, but I I, I don't know. They don't seem to listen or read. And then they they have to retweet. Yeah. I should have told them to do that. That that they can do. Um, I'm convinced of that for sure. Okay. Or if we could Snapchat this somehow, that would be. Well, why didn't you say so? We could have Snapchatted it. We got time. Yeah. We'll do a little post-show Snapchat. <laughs> <laughs> I never know. There's always interesting stuff going on there. But yeah. you know, some of the ideas they came up with, um, part, part of their class project is to come up with an idea that they can turn into a business that they'll mm-hmm. create. And pretty clever things. And, of course, a lot of them about improving the conditions on campus, including uh, improving the learning management system Yes. And mm-hmm. and then creating a mobile version of it, which they had some pretty good ideas where they could, you know, download PowerPoints and podcasts and mm-hmm. um, have access to all the information that right now they can only get on their computer, laptop, whatever yep. they have. 
and things about transportation on campus and uh, GCU is expanding so fast that you need golf carts to get around. Hmm. So scheduling classes used to be pretty easy. And now if you're on one side of the campus and need to get to the other. Yeah, there's some lag time. Yeah, some of that, for. That, that big school uh, issue that they didn't mm-hmm. have before. It's a good problem to have. Yeah. But I, I like that the kids are coming up with ideas to think of things they can do. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. That's really cool. Yeah. Chris, did you have anything else? Chris is mesmerized by I, his pen. No, I was just thinking like, I was just thinking about how I learned to walk super fast at the University of Oregon, trying to get <laughs> from one corner of campus <laughs> to the other corner in 10 minutes. Mm-hmm. Is that why the football players are so quick? <laughs> I, I literally, that may have something. It, we should We should look at, somebody should run some numbers. Fast football teams, size of campus. Well, that assumes that the athletes are actually going to class, but ooh. oh, Yikes. oh, I'm sorry, I I shouldn't have said. That. I, I will I will tell you in, in our in our in our waning seconds. I had uh, I had one class. It was a big service class, two hundred whatever students, uh, principals of advertising, and I had um I had this the probably half the starting offensive line in the back. I knew mm. where they were. They brought in drinks for each other and stuff. I, I knew exactly who they were. There was one guy who plays for the 49ers, won't say his name. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you can probably figure it out. Um, one of two. I saw him once, uh, no, twice in the term. Mm-hmm. Guess what days those were? Midterm. T- final. <laughs> yeah. I pulled that stunt a couple times. And he just showed up, no eye contact. He's just kind of sitting there, just like doing his thing. And then he just left. And he's huge. Super yeah. tall, big dude. Can't mm-hmm. miss him. That's, how I, that's the only reason I knew. That was my world religion class at ASU. Yeah. I felt I felt bad for that professor. I, those, didn't, I didn't treat that class very well. Those big service classes, you, you just can't get emotionally invested in the students, man. You just got to keep your heart close, man. Well, it helped their own, you know, you can't there were only up. 400 of us, so <laughs> yeah. it was okay. Well, it was okay. That's even bigger. <laughs> I, I would definitely need a TA. <laughs> yeah, no, I, couple, I had, I think. I had or, two or, TAs yeah. and I did not do any grading yeah. for that class. Yeah, that's, that's my dream. Yeah. <laughs> I, I have none. Hashtag teacher goals. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> give give extra yeah. credit to make one of your undergrads a TA. Uh, well, I, I did turn it in, which is a, a company that, you know, the kids can send their papers through and, and get them screened and look for plagiarism, but also get grammar comments back. They just bought a company. I can't remember the name of it, but this company is going to help professors grading, hmm. uh, you know, for certain courses. I, I don't think too many math courses, but they will actually do the grading for you and, and provide, you know, you put in the parameters, but then it, it saves you just a ton of time. So I'm campaigning for GCU to take a look at that. (laughs) Yeah. That would save some labor. Save. Yeah. Free that time up for something more innovative. I know. You'd have to choose. Lesson plan. You'd have to choose a style guide that would have to be AP or MLA or something. You'd have to stick with it. You know, I know. (laughs) But then I'd have to learn the style. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. This has been great, Rod. Thank you yeah. so much well, for coming Well, thank you so on. much for having me. It's, you know, I've been here a lot of years and with the tech council trying to make things happen and mm. we're still working at it. And I think people are more excited in the Valley about the potential now. And um, that's great to see. So I'll keep pushing along. I'm more excited after this podcast. Mm-hmm. Well, Do you have any nice. event or project or something yeah. coming up that you want to let our listeners know about? Well, I'm working with a company in Mesa that provides a software as a service enterprise resource platform for, wait for it, 
the newly legalized marijuana industry. Nice. So it's you know med- a fun one. medical marijuana. I've learned so much about the industry. I mean, that sounds like oh, real. You didn't know about marijuana. <laughs> well, um, deep, extensive research. You know, so I've like laid in several hundred boxes giggle, of chocolate giggle. chip cookies in my house. <laughs> oh, no. uh, but it, it, no, it, it's an amazing industry and it's growing so fast and the need for technology because of the regulation and requ- what mm-hmm. you have to be required to do. So this company is sort of second generation technology for these ERP systems and they're a startup, but they're pretty far along. In fact, I'm going to meet with them after this and uh, That's cool. they're, they're pretty cool. Yeah. It's, th- that industry is going to be, you know, there'll be the usual crazies and failures of people who don't do their homework but mm. there's a great opportunity jobs people revenue yeah. it's it's cool to be dispensaries popping up all over canada the video just, game industry is just gonna explode <laughs> people sit on their couches <laughs> it already is yeah, yeah. brownie ingredients through the roof yeah. by stock right now yeah that's um, cool that's yeah. really cool yeah. we'll have to have you back on and do a little follow-up yeah i'd be glad to do that uh, hopefully cool. they're gonna come out of the gate pretty fast they're um getting some um seed money right now to kind of keep them going in the first quarter they'll be looking for a you know not a huge raise but they'll um they'll have revenue and if they get that money they'd be uh cash flow break even in the first 18 months or wow. by 18 months and that's incredible they have pretty good revenue projections so that's great yeah. If people want to get a hold of you, is there somewhere they can go? Um, usually just look on LinkedIn, look me okay. up. Um, that's the easiest way. We we didn't create a website because we didn't, you know, I, I do a lot of stuff on my own. I use contractors sometimes, but most of it it's word of mouth and, you know, people I know in the valley for referrals. So LinkedIn is and on LinkedIn and also Facebook, I I pages for RAL advisory services. So in addition to my personal page, you go to LinkedIn, LinkedIn and RAL Advisory Services. You'll see some of the the blogs and things that I've written and some uh, overview of the services we provide. Cool. Well, thank you, Rod, for coming. Thank on. you. I appreciate yeah. being here. This was fun. I like jogging all these memories. But. Yeah. Yeah. It's 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 always a pleasure, and it's uh it's yeah it's it's always fun and, and inspiring talking with you about these things, Rod. Appreciate yeah. it. Inspiring. No, yeah. I'm, uh, making me nervous. So. No, I like I like what's going on, and I, I love working at uh, GCU. I don't love the admin, but I love working with these kids because they're they're bright minds and they're enthusiastic. And and now that they've kind of gotten a sense of what it takes to get a business going. Mm. They all have ideas. They're ready nice. To I dig it. Well, Chris, it's been another awesome episode. Yes, it has, Mike. Yeah. So, people, if you're listening, <laughs> you can check out Chris and I uh, and find out more about our episodes and other guests that we've had on at azbrandcast.com. Huge thanks to Conscious Capitalism Arizona for sponsoring our episode. Yep. Um, you can check them out at consciouscapitalismaz.com. Um, and of course, our great hosts, business, uh, Phoenix Business Radio X. Yep. Um, they Thanks, are awesome. Guys. Thanks for. I'm looking at you, sound engineer. Yeah. <laughs> Making this happen, putting it all together, doing all the stuff on the back end to put it together. Um, and yeah, if you've got questions for Chris and I, hit us up, azbrandcast.com. You can find our contact information on there. You can also sign up for our newsletter. And of course, you can find our podcast on all the usual places iTunes, Stitcher. Google Play. I don't even know what all else the is places. all the places. Yeah. So go find us, azbrandcast.com. Just search that and you should be good to go. Thank you guys. Love you. Love you.